Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, one of the recent focuses of your writing has been the decline of American higher education. And of course, we're seeing it now in terms of microaggressions, safe spaces, campus protests, but this didn't happen all at once. There's been a sense, at least on the right, that these institutions have been in decline for decades. So let's approach it this way to start. Imagine that you are talking to someone who has been in a coma since maybe the early 60s, before the big wave of campus protests then, which sort of seems like it was an inflection point. How would you describe to them what has happened to the American university in the last 50 years or so? Well, I would say that a generation came of age in the early 60s and mid-60s that saw the university not as a place for disinterested inquiry, but rather as a social force in American society to counteract the family, religion, um, the corporation, free enterprise. And that generation now has come of age. And they believe that basically anything necessary, any means necessary or justified by their noble egalitarian end. So they've sort of put a hyphen on every other – the old curriculum and called it studies, ethnic studies, leisure studies, environmental studies. And these are all courses that are designed to fit a preconceived outcome. And then the race, class, gender ag agenda is now what the university exists for. So uh, it's a politi politicized um, aspect of American society. The other thing, there's two other things that are very important though in that equation. One is when you took time in a very finite student cycle and you took time away from philosophy, foreign language, biology, mathematics, and they're studying Chicano studies or transgendered cons social construction, whatever it is, the students themselves are not uh, graduating with the same skills. They're, and they're arrogant and they're ignorant because they're highly politicized but not very well educated. And then finally, unfortunately, the left as we know it, the elite left in the universities, the foundations, the media also has quite expansive material tastes. So while this was all going on, we created a politically correct administrative class. So the Take one example. The California State University system has increased its administrators by 212 percent in just 15 years. And the teaching load nationwide has been about halved. So we have this kind of guild of full professor tenured who are teaching very few classes, course hours per week. And uh, the result is that tuition has skyrocketed both to accommodate this new social agenda, having speakers on campus and special ethnic centers or gender centers on campus. So we have both a large number of people who are not teaching and then the people who are teaching are teaching very few courses. So it's very expensive and tuition has pretty much gone up double the rate of inflation. And, and to, that, to that point, in the syndicated column that you wrote on this, you know the colleges on one hand – are happy to take all the spoils they can get their hands on, but that they simultaneously resist any accountability measures. Let me read from the column here for a moment. Quote, they claim they are special institutions that should be free to form their own curricula 
enjoy ancient rights such as faculty tenure, not worry much how much they charge students or treat part-time faculty, and establish radical new legal protocols that run contrary to the constitution, close quote. So what's the upshot here, Victor? Is it time to start thinking about stripping these privileges away from colleges? Yeah, I think it is. I think if we didn't have guaranteed student loans and we brought the free market back, then all these universities wouldn't mysteriously have about the same price for tuition, room and board. And they would have to compete for students because the students wouldn't just have a uh, guaranteed loan that the university counts on so then it doesn't look to itself to cut costs and then 25 percent of these loans are defaulted. That's a huge subsidy by the American people and then in addition to that, isn't it funny that they they still take SAT scores and that they think that's a legitimate way of adjudicating people's qualifications uh, to enter college but they have no desire for an exit test. So when you get a bachelor's degree, we have no idea what that means. What is a bachelor's in liberal arts from Yale, Stanford, uh, University of Missouri, Arizona State? What does it mean? We have no idea. We don't know if this person's educated or not. We do know that if you want to go to those schools, you have to have a minimum SAT score that's sort of standardized across time and space. But I, I wish they'd have just, you know, I would like to know if a guy graduates from an American university, he knows what the Pythagorean theory is or what an ionic column is or who, you know, uh, Andrew Jackson was. But they resist that. They want no accountability. Victor, there's been a debate on the right for a while about the proper response to this between whether you want to try to reform these institutions from within or whether you create a sort of parallel infrastructure, the Hillsdale Colleges of the world that are set up to some degree in defiance of the existing order. Where do you come down on that question? I come down kind of both. I think that a place like Hillsdale where I teach a month every year during my time off from Hoover in the summer has made a uh, – it's a very successful idea and it just has one basic principle. It doesn't take federal money and there's not one class in the curriculum that has the word studies in it. And it turns out fabulously educated, well-rounded individuals. That's one model. St. John's is another. There's a lot of, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas. There's a lot of these colleges like that. And then on the other hand, the free market stepped in because you go to any campus in California and just drive within a one-mile circumference and there's DeVries University, there's Phoenix University, there's these pay-for-education, pay, pay I guess we call them trade schools, but they just say, you know what, you don't really need a liberal arts core curriculum because the one you get at the university is so politicized, it's worthless anyway, so we're just going to give you straight units in accounting, straight units in computer literacy, straight units in agriculture, whatever certificate you want, we'll give you and we'll cut out all the other classically liberal curricula because it doesn't exist anymore anyway. And they're very uh, popular and they're cheaper and, they're, and people graduate because they pay for it. And, you know, half of the people are not graduating and they enter a university in six years. So it's kind of the free market. Everybody that I know, I, I talk to a lot of young people every week and uh, especially working class kids, and they're all getting a, a master's, a teaching credential, uh, an administrative degree, uh, a nursing certification. Whatever it is, they're getting it from a private, either online or trade school that's near a university. 
How about the other end of that market? We've talked a lot in some of our recent conversations about the the crisis in elite American institutions. So let's apply that analysis to higher education. What does it mean, Victor, in the year 2016 to be a graduate of Harvard or Yale? The implicit assumption for years has been that that is one of the quickest ways to signal that you merit inclusion in the cognitive elite. Would you still say that today? Yeah, but I would qualify it. Do you really think that a $500 Gucci uh, wallet is better than the one you get at Walmart? I don't. Do you think that uh, Michael Jordan Air $500 tennis shoes are better than something you can buy for 100 My point is that they're brand names. They're brand names you know, like Gucci or Armani. That's what Harvard, Yale, Stanford is. But nobody really privately believes that a person who graduates from English – uh, from Yale is better educated than somebody who graduates in English from Hillsdale or Pepperdine. They just don't believe that. Now, they may they might be harder to get into and you might have students that score better on tests and might be even brighter. But the point is they're not getting educated any better and probably a lot worse than any other place. But they have a brand name. So it raises a really serious dilemma. When you see a young kid that's very bright and wants to go to college – and he's slightly conservative, and he says, I don't want to be brainwashed, then you have to tell him, well, you could go to Hillsdale or you could go to another campus and get just as good as education, but you've got to remember you're not buying the brand name. Stanford and, uh, and Princeton, they're selling a brand name, and that brand name means that when you apply to law school or med school or PhD programs or you're, you finish those programs and you go out for a job, the brand name has market value. So that's what I think these 10 or 15 schools rely on that they say, yeah, you're going to pay 65000 um, $65, a year, but over your lifetime, our brand will give you the connections. Just like if you were a young woman in Manhattan and you, and so you have a big Gucci label on your purse, people are going to think not that you have a nice purse, but that you must have a lot of money and connections, et cetera, et cetera. You've been around college campuses for a long time. We're talking here about big systemic changes in how faculties operate, in how administrations operate. What about the students? Is there something qualitatively different about your average undergraduate student today versus in years past? Yes, there is and they deserve a lot of criticism and sympathy. On the one hand, they're they're carrying a magnitude of debt that's just incomprehensible. That when you see these young kids, they're sixty, eighty, a hundred thousand, and they're not subsidized loans, at least as we used to know them. They're eight and a half, seven and a half. I had a daughter who got a master's from Pepperdine, and she had a hundred thousand dollar loan that. And if I hadn't helped her, I don't know how she'd ever pay it off. But that's and they deserve sympathy for that. But on the other hand, they have not curbed their material appetite. So when I teach. I'm a visiting professor at a lot of campuses. When I park, I look at the quality and I see of cars and I see Lexus, I see BMWs, I see Camrys, I see Honda Accords. I don't see what we used to have, like I guess jalopy type of cars. When I go on campus, <laughs> I have an early model iPhone. Everybody has an iPhone 6, 6A, whatever they are. They're very sophisticated. <laughs> they have nice clothes. So what they're doing is they're living at home. Or they're not planning to have children or they're not going to get married and uh, they're working 
yes, but a lot of that capital and time and income is devoted to their own material appetites. And these universities are very sneaky and they understand that value. So when you go to a university campus and when I speak, I always go, you know, I work on a, I just go to a little treadmill and I, or an exercise bike and I'm just astonished at what you see there. You see rock climbing walls, you see indoor tracks, you see the most sophisticated uh, fitness machines possible. Heated swimming pools because the universities are trying to attract students that demand that type of physical comfort. So, Victor, given the cost that you've just described, both in financial terms and in personal terms, do you have any sympathy for the argument that we've we've heard repeatedly the last couple of years that maybe we're pushing too hard, maybe we're pushing too many kids to go to college and that that could potentially have negative effects in the same way that there were negative effects when we wanted everybody to go out and buy a house? I agree and I agree wholeheartedly because we need to get back to the idea that we can train skilled tile setters, plumbers and that physical muscular labor has real value. And then – and so we need to reward those people who have those skills that are just as important as teachers or lawyers. They really are. And second, by putting people on a fast track into college without any break at all, they don't have any basic skills anymore. When I see a young kid – I just assume that they don't know how to fix anything. They don't know how to mow the lawn. They don't know how to use a chainsaw. They don't know. There's no physicality to them. And they really need to get out in the world for a year or two. And then three, if you think about it, this $1.3 trillion student debt, a quarter of which is being written off, is subsidized by the taxpayer. And so we're basically telling somebody, if you go to work at a plumbing company and they train you as an apprentice plumber, then your tax dollars are going to go to a federal loan program or to federal ed- education aid. And while that in theory helps the, the nation have educated people, you're paying for it in a way that you don't get anything out of it directly. So I think that we need to cut the umbilical cord between the government and the financing of college educations to, as a matter of fairness. So final question then. What does – the future of American higher education look like if the legacy institutions don't reform their behavior? Well, I think we're – I think everybody sees the trajectory. It's becoming almost a joke and everybody's getting pretty cynical about it. So we think, wow, you're Harvard, you're Princeton, you've got a brand, you're a, ca- a cow with a big stamp on it, like a, you're branded. That's nice, but we don't expect anything from you. We expect when you set foot on campus, there's going to be lunatics running around in the classroom. We understand that it's prejudiced against uh, conservatives, against Christians. We just expect that and we, and we try to navigate it around, around it. It's sort of like the medieval church. I mean it exists. It didn't go away, but there was a reformation and then they had to straighten up and have a counter-reformation. And I think that's going to happen. There's going to have to be a counter-reformation on campus because people are tuning it out. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.